0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is by Martin Clifton. The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith. Introduction. Why should I not publish my diary? I have often seen reminiscences of people I have never even heard of. And I fail to see, because I do not happen to be a somebody, why my Diary should not be interesting. My only regret is that I did not commence it when I was a youth. Charles Pooter. The Laurels. Brickfield Terrace. Holloway. End of Introduction The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. CHAPTER One. We settle down in our new home, and I resolve to keep a diary. Tradesmen trouble us a bit, so does the scraper. The curate calls, and pays me a great compliment. My dear wife Carrie and I have just been a week in our new house, the Laurels, Brickfield Terrace, Holloway. A nice six-roomed residence, not counting basement, with a front breakfast parlour. We have a little front garden, and there is a flight of ten steps up to the front door, which, by the by, we keep locked with the chain up. Cummings, Gowing, and our other intimate friends always come to the little side entrance, which saves the servant the trouble of going up to the front door, thereby taking her from her work. We have a nice little back garden, which runs down to the railway. We were rather afraid of the noise of the trains at first, but the landlord said we should not notice them after a bit, and took two pounds off the rent. He was certainly right, and beyond the cracking of the garden-wall at the bottom we have suffered no inconvenience. After my work in the city I like to be at home. What's the good of a home if you are never in it? Home, sweet home, that's my motto. I am always in of an evening. Our old friend Gowing may drop in without ceremony. So may Cummings, who lives opposite. My dear wife Caroline and I are pleased to see them, if they drop in on us. But Carrie and I can manage to pass our evenings together without friends. There is always something to be done—a tin-tack here, a Venetian blind to put straight, a fan to nail up, or part of a carpet to nail down—all of which I can do with a pipe in my mouth while Carrie is not above putting a button on a shirt, mending a pillowcase, or practising the Sylvia Gavotte on our new cottage piano, on the three-year system, manufactured by W. Bilkson in small letters, from Collard and Collard in very large letters. It is also a great comfort to us to know that our boy Willie is getting on so well in the bank at Oldham. We should like to see more of him. Now, for my diary. April the 3rd tradesman called for custom, and I promised Farmerson the ironmonger to give him a turn if I wanted any nails or tools. By the by, that reminds me, there is no key to our bedroom door, and the bells must be seen to. The parlour-bell is broken, and the front door rings up in the servant's bedroom, which is ridiculous. Dear friend Gowing dropped in, but wouldn't stay, saying there was an infernal smell of paint. April the fourth, tradesmen still calling. Carrie being out, I arranged to deal with Horwin, who seemed a civil butcher with a nice, clean shop. Ordered a shoulder of mutton for tomorrow to give him a trial. Carrie arranged with Borsett, the butterman, and ordered a pound of fresh butter and a pound and a half of salt, ditto, for the kitchen, and a shilling's worth of eggs. In the evening, Cummings unexpectedly dropped in to show me a meerschaum pipe he had won in a raffle in the city, and told me to handle it carefully, as it would spoil the colouring if the hand was moist. He said he wouldn't stay, as he didn't care much for the smell of paint, and fell over the scraper as he went out. Must get the scraper removed, or else I shall get into a scrape. I don't often make jokes. April fifth, two shoulders of mutton arrived, Carrie having arranged with another butcher without consulting me. Gowing called and fell over scraper coming in. Must get that scraper removed. April the sixth. Eggs for breakfast simply shocking. Sent them back to Borset with my compliments, and he needn't call any more for orders. Couldn't find an umbrella, and though it was pouring with rain, had to go without it. Sarah said Mister Gowing must have took it by mistake last night, as there was a stick in the awl that didn't belong to nobody. In the evening, hearing someone talking in a loud voice to the servant in the downstairs hall, I went out to see who it was, and was surprised to find it was Borsett, the butterman, who was both drunk and offensive. Borset, on seeing me, said he would be hanged if he would ever serve city clerks any more. The game wasn't worth the candle. I restrained my feelings, and quietly remarked that I thought it was possible for a city clerk to be a gentleman. He replied he was very glad to hear it, and wanted to know whether I had ever come across one, for he hadn't. He left the house, slamming the door after him, which nearly broke the fanlight, And I heard him fall over the scraper, which made me feel glad I hadn't removed it. When he had gone, I thought of a splendid answer I ought to have given him. However, I will keep it for another occasion. April the 7th being Saturday, I looked forward to being home early, and putting a few things straight. But two of our principals at the office were absent through illness, and I did not get home till seven. Found Borsett waiting. He had been three times during the day to apologise for his conduct last night. He said he was unable to take his bank holiday last Monday, and took it last night instead. He begged me to accept his apology and a pound of fresh butter. He seems, after all, a decent sort of fellow. So I gave him an order for some fresh eggs, with a request that on this occasion they should be fresh. I am afraid we shall have to get some new stair carpets, after all. Our old ones are not quite wide enough to meet the paint on either side. Carrie suggests that we might ourselves broaden the paint. I will see if we can match the colour dark chocolate on Monday. April the eighth, Sunday, after church, the curate came back with us. I sent Carrie in to open the front door, which we do not use except on special occasions. She could not get it open, and, after all my display, I had to take the curate, whose name by the by I did not catch, round the side entrance. He caught his foot in the scraper, and tore the bottom of his trousers. Most annoying, as Carrie could not well offer to repair them on a Sunday. After dinner went to sleep. Took a walk round the garden, and discovered a beautiful spot for sowing mustard and cress and radishes. Went to church again in the evening, walked back with the curate. Carrie noticed he had got on the same pair of trousers, only repaired. He wants me to take round the plate, which I think a great compliment. End of chapter The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 2 Tradesman and the Scraper Still Troublesome. Gowing Rather Tiresome with His Complaints of the Paint. I Make One of the Best Jokes of My Life. Delights of Gardening. Mr. Stillbrook, Gowing, Cummings, and I Have A Little Misunderstanding. Sarah Makes Me Look a Fool Before Cummings. April the ninth, Commenced the morning badly. The butcher, whom we decided not to arrange with, called and blaggarded me in the most uncalled-for manner. He began by abusing me and saying he did not want my custom. I simply said, Then what are you making all this fuss about it for? And he shouted at the top of his voice, so that all the neighbours could hear, "Pa, Go along! Uh. I could buy up things like you by the dozen. I shut the door, and was giving Carrie to understand that this disgraceful scene was entirely her fault, when there was a violent kicking at the door enough to break the panels. It was the blackguard butcher again who said he had cut his foot over the scraper, and would immediately bring an action against me. Called at Farmerson's, the ironmonger, on my way to town, and gave him the job of moving the scraper and repairing the bells thinking it scarcely worth while to trouble the landlord with such a trifling matter arrived home tired and worried mr putley a painter and decorator who had sent in a card said he could not match the colour on the stairs as it contained indian carmine he said he spent half a day calling at warehouses to see if he could get it he suggested he should entirely repaint the stairs it would cost very little more if he tried to match it he could only make a bad job of it. It would be more satisfactory to him and to us to have the work done properly. I consented, but felt I had been talked over. Planted some mustard and cress and radishes, and went to bed at nine. April the tenth, Farmerson came round to attend to the scraper himself. He seems a very civil fellow. He says he does not usually conduct such small jobs personally, but for me he would do so. I thanked him and went to town. It is disgraceful how late some of the young clerks are at arriving. I told three of them that if Mr. Perkup, the principal, heard of it they might be discharged. Pitt, a monkey of seventeen, who has only been with us six weeks, told me to keep my hair on. I informed him that I had had the honour of being in the firm twenty years to which he insolently replied that I looked it. I gave him an indignant look, and said, I demand from you some respect, sir. He replied, All right, go on demanding. I would not argue with him any further. You cannot argue with people like that. In the evening Gowing called, and repeated his complaint about the smell of paint. Gowing is sometimes very tedious with his remarks, and not always cautious. And Carrie once very properly reminded him that she was present. April the eleventh, mustard and cress and radishes not come up yet. Today was a day of annoyances. I missed the quarter to nine bus to the city through having words with the grocer's boy, who for the second time had the impertinence to bring his basket to the hall door, and had left the marks of his dirty boots on the fresh cleaned doorsteps. He said he had knocked at the side door with his knuckles for a quarter of an hour. I knew Sarah, our servant, could not hear this as she was upstairs doing the bedrooms, so asked the boy why he did not ring the bell. He replied that he did pull the bell, but the handle came off in his hand. I was half an hour late at the office, a thing that has never happened to me before. There has recently been much irregularity in the attendance of the clerks, and Mr. Perkup, our principal unfortunately chose this very morning to pounce down upon us early. Someone had given the tip to the others. The result was that I was the only one late of the lot. Buckling, one of the senior clerks, was a brick, and I was saved by his intervention. As I passed by Pitt's desk I heard him remark to his neighbour, "'How disgracefully late some of our head clerks arrive! This was, of course, meant for me. I treated the observation with silence, simply giving him a look, which unfortunately had the effect of making both of the clerks laugh. Thought afterwards it would have been more dignified if I had pretended not to have heard him at all. Cummings called in the evening, and we played dominoes. April the 12th. Mustard and cress and radishes not come up yet left Farmerson repairing the scraper, but when I came home found three men working. I asked the meaning of it, and Farmerson said that in making a fresh hole he had penetrated the gas-pipe. He said it was a most ridiculous place to put the gas-pipe, and the man who did it evidently knew nothing about his business. I felt his excuse was no consolation for the expense I should be put to. In the evening, after tea, Gowing dropped in and we had a smoke together in the breakfast parlour. Carrie joined us later, but did not stay long, saying the smoke was too much for her. It was also rather too much for me, for Gowing had given me what he called a green cigar, one that his friend Schumack had just brought over from America. The cigar didn't look green, but I fancy I must have done so, for when I had smoked a little more than half I was obliged to retire on the pretext of telling Sarah to bring in the glasses. I took a walk round the garden three or four times, feeling the need for fresh air. On returning, Gowing noticed I was not smoking, offered me another cigar, which I politely declined. Gowing began his usual sniffing, so, anticipating him, I said,—'You're not going to complain of the smell of paint again?' He said,—'No, not this time, but I'll tell you what. I distinctly smell dry rot.' I don't often make jokes, but I replied, you're talking a lot of dry rot yourself." I could not help roaring at this, and Carrie said her sides quite ached with laughter. I never was so immensely tickled by anything I had ever said before. I actually woke up twice during the night, and laughed till the bed shook. April thirteenth, An extraordinary coincidence. Carrie had called in a woman to make some chintz covers for our drawing-room chairs and sofa. To prevent the sun fading the green rep of the furniture, I saw the woman and recognised her as a woman who used to work years ago for Mild Aunt at Clapham. It only shows how small the world is. April the fourteenth, spent the whole of the afternoon in the garden, having this morning picked up at a bookstall for fivepence a capital little book in good condition on gardening. I procured and sewed some half-hardy annuals in what I fancy will be a warm, sunny border. I thought of a joke, and called out Carrie. Carrie came out rather testy, I thought. I said, I've just discovered we have got a lodging-house. She replied, How do you mean? I said, Look at the borders. Carrie said, Is that all you wanted before?" I said, At any other time you would have laughed at my little pleasantry. Carrie said, Certainly at any other time, but not when I am busy in the house. The stairs looked very nice. Gowing called, and said the stairs looked all right, but it made the banisters look all wrong, and suggested a coat of paint on them also, which Carrie quite agreed with. I walked round to Putley, and fortunately he was out, so I had a good excuse to let the banisters slide. By the by, that's rather funny. April the fifteenth, Sunday At three o'clock Cummings and Gowing called for a good long walk over Hampstead and Finchley, and brought with them a friend named Stillbrook. We walked and chatted together except Stillbrook, who was always a few yards behind us, staring at the ground and cutting at the grass with his stick. As it was getting on for five, we four held a consultation, and Gowing suggested that we should make for the Cow and Hedge, and get some tea. Stillbrook said, brandy and soda was good enough for him. I reminded them that all public-houses were closed till six o'clock. Stillbrook said, "'That's all right. Bona fide travellers. We arrived, and as I was trying to pass, the man in charge of the gate said, "'Where from?' I replied, "Holloway." He immediately put up his arm and declined to let me pass. I turned back for a moment when I saw Stillbrook, closely followed by Cummings and Gowing, making for the entrance. I watched them, and thought I would have a good laugh at their expense. I heard the porter say, Where from? when, to my surprise, in fact, disgust, Stillbrook replied, Blackheath, and the three were immediately admitted. Gowing called to me across the gate and said, We shan't be a minute. I waited for them the best part of an hour. When they appeared, they were all in most excellent spirits, and the only one who made an effort to apologise was Mr. Stillbrook, who said to me, "'It was very rough on you to be kept waiting, but we had another spin for S and B's.' I walked home in silence. I couldn't speak to them. I felt very dull all the evening, but deemed it advisable not to say anything to Carrie about the matter. April sixteenth, After business, set to work in the garden. When it got dark I wrote to Cummings and Gowing, who neither called, for a wonder perhaps they were ashamed of themselves, about yesterday's adventure at the Coward Hedge. Afterwards made up my mind not to write yet. April seventeenth, Thought I would write a kind little note to Gowing and Cummings about last Sunday, and warning them against Mr. Stillbrook. Afterwards, thinking the matter over, tore up the letter and determined not to write at all but to speak quietly to them. Dumbfounded at receiving a sharp letter from Cummings, saying that both he and Gowing had been waiting for an explanation of my, mind you, my extraordinary conduct, coming home on Sunday. At last I wrote I thought I was the aggrieved party, but as I freely forgive you, you, feeling yourself aggrieved, should bestow forgiveness on me. I have copied this verbatim in the diary because I think it is one of the most perfect and thoughtful sentences I have ever written. I posted the letter, but in my own heart I felt I was actually apologizing for having been insulted. April the 18th. I'm in for a cold, spent the whole day at the office sneezing. In the evening, the cold being intolerable, sent Sarah out for a bottle of Kinahan. Fell asleep in the armchair and woke with the shivers. Was startled by a loud knock at the front door. Carrie awfully flurried. Sarah still out, so went up, opened the door, and found it was only Cummings. Remembered the grocer's boy had again broken the side bell. Cummings squeezed my hand and said, I've just seen going. All right, say no more about it. There is no doubt they are both under the impression I have apologized. While playing dominoes with Cummings in the parlour, he said, "'By the byte, do you want any wine or spirits? My cousin Merton has just set up in the trade, and has a splendid whisky four years in a bottle at thirty-eight shillings. It is worth your while laying down a few dozen of it.' I told him my cellars, which were very small, were full up. To my horror, at that very moment Sarah entered the room, and, putting a bottle of whisky wrapped in a dirty piece of newspaper on the table in front of us, said, Please, sir, the grocer says he ain't got no more, Kinahan, but you'll find this very good at two and six, with twopence returned on the bottle. And, please, did you want any more sherry? As he has some at one and three, as dry as a nut. End of chapter. The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 3 a conversation with Mr. Merton on society. Mr. and Mrs. James of Sutton come up. A miserable evening at the Tank Theatre. Experiments with enamel paint. I make another good joke, but Gowing and Cummings are unnecessarily offended. I paint the bath red with unexpected result. April the nineteenth. Cummings calls, bringing with him his friend Merton, who is in the wine trade. Gowing also called. Mr. Merton made himself at home at once, and Carrie and I were both struck with him immediately, and thoroughly approved of his sentiments. He leaned back in his chair and said,—'You must take me as I am,' and I replied,—'Yes, and you must take us as we are. We're homely people. We're not swells.' He answered,—'No, I can see that,' and Gowing roared with laughter. But Merton, in a most gentlemanly manner, said to Gowing, "'I don't think you quite understand me. I intended to convey that our charming host and hostess were superior to the follies of fashion, and preferred leading a simple and wholesome life to gadding about to twopenny halfpenny tea-drinking afternoons, and living above their incomes.' I was immensely pleased with these sensible remarks of Merton's, and concluded that subject by saying, No, candidly, Mr. Merton, we don't go into society, because we do not care for it. And what with the expense of cabs here and cabs there, and white gloves and white ties, etc., it doesn't seem worth the money. Merton said, in reference to friends, my motto is, few and true, and, by the way, I also apply that to wine, little and good. Gowing said, yes, and sometimes cheap and tasty, eh, old man? Merton, still continuing, said he should treat me as a friend, and put me down for a dozen of his Lock and whisky, and as I was an old friend of Gowing, I should have it for thirty-six shillings, which was considerably under what he paid for it. He booked his own order, and further said that at any time I wanted any passes for the theatre, I was to let him know, as his name stood good for any theatre in London. April the 20th Carrie reminded me that as her old school-friend Annie Fullers, now Mrs. James, and her husband had come up from Sutton for a few days, it would look kind to take them to the theatre, and would I drop a line to Mr. Merton, asking him for passes for four—either for the Italian Opera, Haymarket, Savoy, or Lyceum. I wrote Merton to that effect. April twenty-first, got a reply from Merton, saying he was very busy and just at present couldn't manage passes for the Italian opera Haymarket, Savoy, or Lyceum, but the best thing going on in London was the brown bushes at the Tank Theatre Islington, and enclosed seats for four, also bill for whisky. April twenty-third, Mr. and Mrs. James, Miss Fuller's that was, came to meet tea, and we left directly after for the Tank Theatre. We got a bus that took us to King's Cross, and then changed into one that took us to the Angel. Mr. James each time insisted on paying for all, saying that I had paid for the tickets, and that was quite enough. We arrived at theatre, where, curiously enough, all our busload except an old woman with a basket seemed to be going in. I walked ahead and presented the tickets. The man looked at them and called out, Mr. Willowey, Do you know anything about these, holding up my tickets?" The gentleman called to, came up and examined my tickets, and said, "'Who gave you these?' I said, rather indignantly, "'Mr. Merton, of course.' He said, "'Merton, who's he?' I answered, rather sharply. You ought to know. His name's good at any theatre in London.' He replied, "'Oh, is it? Well, it ain't no good here. These tickets which are not dated, were issued under Mr. Swinstead's management, which has since changed hands. While I was having some very unpleasant words with the man, James, who had gone upstairs with the ladies, called out, "'Come on!' I went up after him, and a very civil attendant said, "'This way, please, Box H. I said to James, "'Why, how on earth did you manage it?' And to my horror he replied, "'Why, paid for it, of course.' This was humiliating enough, and I could scarcely follow the play but I was doomed to still further humiliation. I was leaning out of the box when my tie, a little black bow which fastened on the stud by means of a new patent, fell into the pit below. A clumsy man, not noticing it, had his foot on it for ever so long before he discovered it. He then picked it up, and eventually flung it under the next seat in disgust. What with the box incident and the tie, I felt quite miserable. Mr. James, of Sutton, was very good. He said, "'Don't worry. No one will notice it with your beard. That is the only advantage of growing one that I can see.' There was no occasion for that remark, for Carrie is very proud of my beard. To hide the absence of the tie I had to keep my chin down the rest of the evening, which caused a pain at the back of my neck. April the twenty-fourth could scarcely sleep a wink through thinking of having brought up Mr. and Mrs. James from the country to go to the theatre last night, and his having paid for a private box because our order was not honoured. And such a poor play, too. I wrote a very satirical letter to Merton, the wine-merchant who gave us the pass, and said, considering we had to pay for our seats, we did our best to appreciate the performance. I thought this line rather cutting and I asked Carrie how many peas there were in Appreciate, and she said one. After I sent off the letter, I looked at the dictionary, and found there were two. Awfully vexed at this. Decided not to worry myself any more about the Jameses, for, as Carrie wisely said, we'll make it all right with them by asking them up from Sutton one evening next week to play at Bezique. April the 25th In consequence of Brickwell telling me his wife was working wonders with the new Pinkfolds enamel paint, I determined to try it. I bought two tins of red on my way home. I hastened through tea, went into the garden, and painted some flower-pots. I called out to Carrie, who said, You've always got some new-fangled craze, but she was obliged to admit that the flower-pots looked remarkably well went upstairs into the servants' bedroom and painted her washstand, towel-horse and chest of drawers. To my mind it was an extraordinary improvement, but as an example of the ignorance of the lower classes in the matter of taste, our servant Sarah on seeing them evinced no sign of pleasure but merely said she thought they looked very well as they was before. April the 26th got some more red enamel paint, red to my mind being the best colour and painted the coal-scuttle and the backs of our Shakespeare, the binding of which had almost worn out. April twenty seventh, painted the bath red, and was delighted with the result. Sorry to say Carrie was not. In fact, we had a few words about it. She said I ought to have consulted her, and she had never heard of such a thing as a bath being painted red. I replied, It's merely a matter of taste. Fortunately, further argument on the subject was stopped by a voice saying, "'May I come in?' It was only Cummings who said, "'Your maid opened the door, and asked me to excuse her showing me in, as she was wringing out some socks.' I was delighted to see him, and suggested we should have a game of whist with a dummy, and by way of merriment said, "'You can be the dummy!' Cummings, I thought, rather ill-naturedly, replied, "'Funny as usual.' He said he couldn't stop, he only called to leave me the bicycle news, as he had done with it. Another ring at the bell. It was Gowing who said he must apologise for coming so often, and that one of these days we must come round to see him. I said a very extraordinary thing has struck me. "'Something funny, as usual?' said Cummings. "'Yes,' I replied, "'I think even you will say so this time. It's concerning you both for doesn't it seem odd that Gowing's always coming, and Cummings always going?" Carrie, who had evidently quite forgotten about the bath, went into fits of laughter, and as for myself I fairly doubled up in my chair till it cracked beneath me. I think this was one of the best jokes I have ever made. Then imagine my astonishment on perceiving both Cummings and Gowing perfectly silent, and without a smile on their faces. After rather an unpleasant pause, Cummings, who had opened a cigar-case, closed it up again and said, "'Yes, I think after that I shall be going, and I am sorry I failed to see the fun of your jokes.' Gowing said he didn't mind a joke when it wasn't rude, but a pun on a name to his thinking was certainly a little wanting in good taste. Cummings followed it up by saying, if it had been said by anyone else but myself, he shouldn't have entered the house again. This rather unpleasantly terminated what might have been a cheerful evening. However, it was as well they went, for the charwoman had finished up the remains of the cold pork. April twenty eighth. At the office, the new and very young clerk, Pitt, who was very impudent to me a week or so ago, was late again. I told him it would be my duty to inform Mr. Perkup, the principal. To my surprise Pitt apologised most humbly and in a most gentlemanly fashion. I was unfeignedly pleased to notice this improvement in his manner towards me, and told him I would look over his unpunctuality. Passing down the room an hour later, I received a smart smack in the face from a rolled-up ball of hard foolscap. I turned round sharply, but all the clerks were apparently riveted to their work. I am not a rich man, but I would have given half a sovereign to know whether that was thrown by accident or design. Went home early and bought some more enamel paint, black this time, and spent the evening touching up the fender, picture frames, and an old pair of boots, making them look as good as new. Also painted Gowing's walking stick, which he left behind, and made it look like ebony. April twenty ninth, Sunday. Woke up with a fearful headache and strong symptoms of a cold. Carrie, with a perversity which is just like her, said it was painter's colic, and was the result of my having spent the last few days with my nose over a paint pot. I told her firmly that I knew a great deal better what was the matter with me than she did. I had got a chill, and decided to have a bath as hot as I could bear it. Bath ready, could scarcely bear it so hot. I persevered and got in very hot, but very acceptable. I lay still for some time. On moving my hand above the surface of the water I experienced the greatest fright I ever received in the whole course of my life. For imagine my horror on discovering my hand, as I had thought, full of blood. My first thought was that I had ruptured an artery, and was bleeding to death, and should be discovered, later on, looking like a second Marat, as I remembered seeing him in Madame Tussaud's. My second thought was to ring the bell, but remembered there was no bell to ring. My third was that there was nothing but the enamel paint which had dissolved with boiling water. I stepped out of the bath, perfectly red all over, resembling the red Indians I have seen depicted at an East End theatre. I determined not to say a word to Carrie, but to tell Farmerson to come on Monday and paint the bath white.
1: End of chapter
0: The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter Four, The Ball at the Mansion House. April the thirtieth, perfectly astounded at receiving an invitation for Carrie and myself from the Lord and Lady Mayoress to the Mansion House, to meet representatives of trades and commerce, my heart beat like that of a schoolboy's. Carrie and I read the invitation over two or three times. I could scarcely eat my breakfast. I said, and I felt it from the bottom of my heart, Carrie darling, I was a proud man when I led you down the aisle of the Church on our wedding-day. That pride will be equalled, if not surpassed, when I lead my dear pretty wife up to the Lord and Lady Mayoress at the Mansion House. I saw the tears in Carrie's eyes, and she said, Charlie dear, It is I who have to be proud of you, and I am very, very proud of you. You have called me pretty, and as long as I am pretty in your eyes I am happy. You, dear old Charlie, are not handsome, but you are good, which is far more noble." I gave her a kiss, and she said, "'I wonder if there will be any dancing. I have not danced with you for years. I cannot tell what induced me to do it. But I seized her round the waist, and we were silly enough to be executing a wild kind of polka when Sarah entered, grinning, and said,—'There is a man-mum at the door who wants to know if you want any good coals.' Most annoyed at this, spent the evening in answering and tearing up again the reply to the mansion-house. Having left word with Sarah, if Gowing or Cummings called, we were not at home. Must consult Mr. Percup how to answer the Lord Mayor's invitation. May the first. Carrie said, I should like to send mother the invitation to look at. I consented as soon as I had answered it. I told Mr. Perkup at the office with a feeling of pride that we had received an invitation to the Mansion House, and he said, to my astonishment, that he himself gave in my name to the Lord Mayor's secretary. I felt this rather discounted the value of the invitation, but I thanked him. And in reply to me he described how I was to answer it. I felt the reply was too simple, but of course Mr. Perkup knows best. May the second. Sent my dress coat and trousers to the little tailor's round the corner to have the creases taken out. Told Gowing not to call next Monday as we were going to the mansion house. Sent similar note to Cummings. May the third, Carrie went to Mrs. James at Sutton to consult about her dress for next Monday. While speaking incidentally to Spotch, one of our head clerks, about the Mansion House, he said, Oh, I'm asked, but I don't think I shall go. When a vulgar man like Spotch is asked, I feel my invitation is considerably discounted. In the evening, while I was out, the little tailor brought round my coat and trousers, and because Sarah had not a shilling to pay for the pressing, he took them away again. May the fourth. Carrie's mother returned the Lord Mayor's invitation, which was sent to her to look at, with apologies for having upset a glass of port over it. I was too angry to say anything. May the fifth, bought a pair of lavender kid gloves for next Monday and two white ties in case one got spoiled in the tying. May the sixth Sunday, a very dull sermon during which I regret to say. I twice thought of the Mansion House reception to-morrow. May 7th—a big red-letter day, viz. the Lord Mayor's reception. The whole house upset. I had to get dressed at half-past six, as Carrie wanted the room to herself. Mrs. James had come up from Sutton to help Carrie, so I could not help thinking it unreasonable that she should require the entire attention of Sarah the servant as well. Sarah kept running out of the house to fetch something for Missus and several times I had in my full evening dress to answer the back door. The last time it was the greengrocer's boy, who, not seeing it was me, for Sarah had not lighted the gas, pushed into my hands two cabbages and half a dozen coal-blocks. I indignantly threw them on the ground, and felt so annoyed that I so far forgot myself as to box the boy's ears. He went away crying, and said he should summons me, a thing I would not have happened for the world. In the dark, I stepped on a piece of the cabbage, which brought me down on the flags all of a heap. For a moment I was stunned, but when I recovered, I crawled upstairs into the drawing-room, and on looking into the chimney-glass discovered that my chin was bleeding, my shirt smeared with coal-blocks, and my left trouser torn at the knee. However, Mrs. James brought me down another shirt, which I changed in the drawing-room. I put a piece of court-plaster on my chin and Sarah very neatly sewed up the tear at the knee. At nine o'clock Carrie swept into the room, looking like a queen. Never have I seen her looking so lovely or so distinguished. She was wearing a satin dress of sky-blue, my favourite colour, and a piece of lace which Mrs. James lent her round the shoulders, to give a finish. I thought perhaps the dress was a little too long behind, and decidedly too short in front, but Mrs. James said it was à la mode. Mrs. James was most kind, and lent Carrie a fan of ivory with red feathers, the value of which, she said, was priceless, as the feathers belonged to the cachou Eagle, a bird now extinct. I preferred the little white fan which Carrie bought for three and six at Shulbred's, but both ladies sat on me at once. We arrived at the Mansion-House too early, which was rather fortunate, for I had an opportunity of speaking to his Lordship, who graciously condescended to talk with me some minutes. But I must say I was disappointed to find he did not even know Mr. Percup the Principal. I felt as if I had been invited to the Mansion-House by one who did not know the Lord Mayor himself. Crowds arrived, and I shall never forget the grand sight—my humble pen can never describe it. I was a little annoyed with Carrie, who kept saying, Isn't it a pity we don't know anybody? Once she quite lost her head. I saw someone who looked like Franching from Peckham, and was moving towards him, when she seized me by the coat-tails and said quite loudly, Don't leave me, which caused an elderly gentleman in a court suit and a chain round him and two ladies to burst out laughing. There was an immense crowd in the supper-room, and, my stars, it was a splendid supper any amount of champagne. Carrie made a most hearty supper, for which I was pleased, for I sometimes think she is not strong. There was scarcely a dish she did not taste. I was so thirsty I could not eat much. Receiving a sharp slap on the shoulder, I turned, and to my amazement saw Farmerson, our ironmonger. He said, in the most familiar way, "'This is better than Brickfield Terrace, eh?' I simply looked at him, and said coolly,—'I never expected to see you here.' He said, with a loud coarse laugh,—'I like that. If you, why not me?' I replied,—'Certainly.' I wish I could have thought of something better to say. He said,—'Can I get your good lady anything?' Carrie said,—'No, I thank you,' for which I was pleased. I said, by way of reproof to him. You never sent to-day to paint the bath, as I requested?" Farmerson said, "'Pardon me, Mr. Pooter. No shop when we're in company, please.' Before I could think of a reply, one of the sheriffs, in full court costume, slapped Farmerson on the back and hailed him as an old friend, and asked him to dine with him at his lodge. I was astonished. For full five minutes they stood roaring with laughter, and stood digging each other in the ribs they kept telling each other they didn't look a day older. They began embracing each other and drinking champagne. To think that a man who mends our scraper should know any member of the aristocracy. I was just moving with Carrie when Farmerson seized me rather roughly by the collar, and, addressing the sheriff, said,—'Let me introduce my neighbour Pooter.' He did not even say,—'Mr.' The sheriff handed me a glass of champagne. I felt, after all, it was a great honour to drink a glass of wine with him, and I told him so. We stood chatting for some time, and at last I said, You must excuse me now if I join Mrs. Pooter. When I approached her, she said, Don't let me take you away from your friends. I am quite happy standing here alone in a crowd knowing nobody. As it takes two to make a quarrel, and as it was neither the time nor the place for it, I gave my arm to Carrie, and said, I hope my darling little wife will dance with me, if only for the sake of saying we had danced at the Mansion House as guests of the Lord Mayor. Finding the dancing after supper was less formal, and knowing how much Carrie used to admire my dancing in the days gone by, I put my arm round her waist, and we commenced a waltz. A most unfortunate accident occurred. I had got on a new pair of boots. Foolishly, I had omitted to take Carrie's advice, namely to scratch the soles of them with the points of the scissors, or to put a little wet on them. I had scarcely started when, like lightning, my left foot slipped away, and I came down, the side of my head striking the floor, with such violence that for a second or two I did not know what had happened. I need hardly say that Carrie fell with me with equal violence, breaking the comb in her hair and grazing her elbow there was a roar of laughter which was immediately checked when people found out that we had really hurt ourselves. A gentleman assisted Carrie to a seat, and I expressed myself pretty strongly on the danger of having a plain polished floor with no carpet or drugget to prevent people slipping. The gentleman, who said his name was Darwitz, insisted on escorting Carrie to have a glass of wine, an invitation which I was pleased to allow Carrie to accept. I followed and met Farmerson, who immediately said in his loud voice, "'Oh, are you the one who went down?' I answered with an indignant look. With execrable taste he said, "'Look here, old man, we are too old for this game. We must leave these capers to the youngsters. Come and have another glass. That's more in our line.' Although I felt I was buying his silence by accepting, we followed the others into the supper-room. Neither Carrie nor I, after our unfortunate mishap, felt inclined to stay longer. As we were departing, Farmerson said, Are you going? If so, you might give me a lift. I thought it better to consent, but wish I had first consulted Carrie. End of chapter. The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith. Read for LibriVox.org. By Martin Clifton. Chapter 5. After the Mansion House Ball. Carrie offended. Gowing also offended. A pleasant party at the Cummings. Mr. Franching of Peckham visits us. May the eighth. I woke up with a most terrible headache. I could scarcely see, and the back of my head was as if I had given it a crick. I thought first of sending for a doctor, but I did not think it necessary. When up, I felt faint, and went to Brownish's, the chemist, who gave me a draught. So bad at the office, had to get leave to come home. Went to another chemist in the city, and I got a draught. Brownish's dose seems to have made me worse, have eaten nothing all day. To make matters worse, Carrie, every time I spoke to her, answered me sharply, that is, when she answered at all. In the evening I felt very much worse again, and said to her, "'I do believe I've been poisoned by the lobster mayonnaise at the mansion-house last night.' She simply replied, without taking her eyes from her sewing, "'Champagne never did agree with you.' I felt irritated, and said, "'What nonsense you talk! I only had a glass and a half, and you know as well as I do.' Before I could complete the sentence she bounced out of the room. I sat over an hour waiting for her to return but, as she did not, I determined I would go to bed. I discovered Carrie had gone to bed without even saying good-night, leaving me to bar the scullery door and feed the cat. I shall certainly speak to her about this in the morning. May the ninth, Still a little shaky, with black specks. The Blackfriars' bi-weekly news contains a long list of the guests at the Mansion House Ball. Disappointed to find our names omitted, though Farmerson's is in plainly enough, with M.L.L. after it, whatever that may mean. More than vexed, because we had ordered a dozen copies to send to our friends. Wrote to the Blackfriars bi-weekly news, pointing out their omission. Carrie had commenced her breakfast when I entered the parlour. I helped myself to a cup of tea, and I said, perfectly calmly and quietly, Carrie, I wish a little explanation of your conduct last night. She replied, Indeed, and I desire something more than a little explanation of your conduct the night before. I said coolly, Really, I don't understand you. Carrie said, sneeringly, Probably not. You were scarcely in a condition to understand anything. I was astounded at this insinuation, and simply ejaculated, Caroline. She said, Don't be theatrical, it has no effect on me. Reserve that tone for your new friend Mr. Farmerson, the ironmonger. I was about to speak when Carrie, in a temper such as I have never seen her in before, told me to hold my tongue. She said, Now I am going to say something. After professing to snub Mr. Farmerson, you permitted him to snub you in my presence, and then accept his invitation to take a glass of champagne with you, and you don't limit yourself to one glass you then offer this vulgar man who had made a bungle of repairing our scraper a seat in our cab on the way home. I say nothing about his tearing my dress in getting in the cab, nor of treading on Mrs. James's expensive fan, which you knocked out of my hand, and for which he never apologised. But you smoked all the way home without having the decency to ask my permission. That is not all. At the end of the journey, although he did not offer you a farthing towards his share of the cab, you asked him in. Fortunately he was sober enough to detect, from my manner, that his company was not desirable. Goodness knows I felt humiliated enough at this. But, to make matters worse, Gowing entered the room without knocking, with two hats on his head and holding the garden rake in his hand, with Carrie's fur-tippet, which he had taken off the downstairs-hall peg, round his neck, and announced himself in a loud, coarse voice, His Royal Highness the Lord Mayor. He marched twice round the room like a buffoon, and finding we took no notice, said, Hello! What's up, lover's quarrel, eh? There was a silence for a moment, so I said quietly, My dear Gowing, I'm not very well, and not quite in the humour for joking. Especially when you enter the room without knocking, an act which I fail to see the fun of." Gowing said, I am very sorry, but I called for my stick, which I thought you would have sent round. I handed him his stick, which I remembered I had painted black, with the enamel paint, thinking to improve it. He looked at it for a minute with a dazed expression, and said, Who did this? I said, Eh, did what? He said, Did what? Why, destroyed my stick. It belonged to my poor uncle, and I value it more than anything I have in the world. I'll know who did it. I said, I am very sorry. I dare say it will come off. I did it for the best. Gowing said, Then all I can say is, it's a confounded liberty. And, I would add, you're a bigger fool than you look. Only that's absolutely impossible. May the twelfth, Got a single copy of the Blackfriars' bi-weekly news. There was a short list of several names they had omitted. But the stupid people had mentioned our names as Mr. and Mrs. C. Porter. Most annoying wrote again, and I took particular care to write our name in capital letters P-O-O-T-E-R, so that there should be no possible mistake this time. May sixteenth. Absolutely disgusted on opening the Blackfriars bi-weekly news of today, to find the following paragraph. We have received two letters from Mr and Mrs Charles Pewter requesting us to announce the important fact that they were at the Mansion House Ball. I tore up the paper and threw it in the waste paper basket. My time is far too valuable to bother about such trifles. May the twenty-first, the last week or ten days terribly dull. Carrie being away at Mrs. James at Sutton, Cummings also away. Gowing, I presume, is still offended with me for black enamelling his stick without asking him. May the twenty-second, purchased a new stick mounted with silver, which costs seven and sixpence shall tell Carry five shillings, and sent it round with nice note to Gowing. May the 23rd received strange note from Gowing. He said, Offended? Not a bit, my boy. I thought you were offended with me for losing my temper. Besides, I found, after all, it was not my poor old uncle's stick you painted. It was only a shilling thing I bought at a tobacconist's. However, I am much obliged to you for your handsome present all same." May twenty fourth, Carrie back. Hurrah! She looks wonderfully well, except that the sun has caught her nose. May the twenty fifth, Carrie brought down some of my shirts and advised me to take them to Trillips round the corner. She said, The fronts and cuffs are much frayed. I said, without a moment's hesitation, I'm frayed they are. Lor, how we roared! I thought we should never stop laughing. As I happened to be sitting next to the driver going to town on the bus, I told him my joke about the frayed shirts. I thought he would have rolled off his seat. They laughed at the officer a good bit too over it. May the 26th. Left the shirts to be repaired at Trillips. I said to him, "I'm frayed, they're frayed." He said without a smile, "They're bound to do that, sir. Some people seem to be quite destitute of a sense of humour. June the 1st. The last week has been like old times, Carrie being back and Gowing and Cummings calling every evening nearly. Twice we sat out in the garden quite late. This evening we were like a pack of children and played Consequences. It's a good game. June the second, Consequences again this evening, not quite so successful as last night, Gowing having several times overstepped the limits of good taste. June the fourth, In the evening, Carrie and I went round to Mr. and Mrs. Cummings to spend a quiet evening with them. Gowing was there, also Mr. Stillbrook. It was quiet but pleasant. Mrs. Cummings sang five or six songs, No, sir, and The Garden of Sleep being best in my humble judgment. But what pleased me most was the duet she sang with Carrie—classical duet, too. I think it is called I Would That My Love. It was beautiful. If Carrie had been in better voice, I don't think professionals could have sung it better. After supper, we made them sing it again. I never liked Mr. Stillbrook since the walk that Sunday to the Cow and Hedge, but I must say he sings comic songs well. His song, We Don't Want the Old Men Now, made a shriek with laughter, especially the verse referring to Mr. Gladstone. But there was one verse I think he might have omitted, and I said so, but Gowing thought it was the best of the lot. June 6th Trillip brought round the shirts and, to my disgust, his charge for repairing was more than I gave for them when new. I told him so, and he impertinently replied, Well, they are better now than when they were new. I paid him and said it was a robbery. He said, If you wanted your shirt fronts made out of pauper linen, such as is used for packing and bookbinding, why didn't you say so? June the seventh. A dreadful annoyance. Met Mr. Franching, who lives at Peckham and who is a great swell in his way. I ventured to ask him to come home to meet tea and take potluck. I did not think he would accept such a humble invitation, but he did, saying in a most friendly way he would rather peck with us than by himself. I said, We had better get into this blue bus. He replied, No blue bussing for me. I have had enough of the blues lately. I lost a cool fow over the copper-scare. Step in here. We drove up home in style in a hansom cab, and I knocked three times at the front door without getting an answer. I saw Carrie through the panels of the ground-glass, with stars, rushing upstairs. I told Mr. Franching to wait at the door while I went round to the side. There I saw the grocer's boy actually picking off the paint on the door which had formed into blisters. No time to reprove him, so went round and effected an entrance through the kitchen window. I let in Mr. Franchin, and showed him into the drawing-room. I went upstairs to Carrie, who was changing her dress, and told her I had persuaded Mr. Franchin to come home. She replied,—'How can you do such a thing? You know it's Sarah's holiday, and there's not a thing in the house,' the cold mutton having turned with the hot weather. Eventually Carrie, like a good creature as she is, slipped down, washed up the teacups, and laid the cloth and I gave Franching our views of Japan to look at, while I ran round to the butcher's to get three chops. July the thirtieth, The miserable cold weather is either upsetting me, or Carrie, or both. We seem to break out into an argument about absolutely nothing, and this unpleasant state of things usually occurs at meal-times. This morning, for some unaccountable reason, we were talking about balloons, and we were as merry as possible but the conversation drifted into family matters, during which Carrie, without the slightest reason, referred in the most uncomplimentary manner to my forefather's pecuniary trouble. I retorted by saying that Pa, at all events, was a gentleman. Whereupon Carrie burst out crying. I positively could not eat any breakfast. At the office I was sent for by Mr. Perker, who said he was very sorry. But I should have to take my annual holidays from next Saturday. Franching called at the office and asked me to dine at his club, the Constitutional. Fearing disagreeables at home after the tiff this morning, I sent a telegram to Carrie telling her I was going out to dine and she was not to sit up. Bought a little silver bangle for Carrie. July thirty-first, Carrie was very pleased with the bangle which I left with an affectionate note on her dressing-table last night before going to bed. I told Carrie we should have to start for our holiday next Saturday. She replied, quite happily, that she did not mind, except that the weather was so bad, and she feared that Miss Gibbons would not be able to get her a seaside dress in time. I told Carrie that I thought the drab one with pink bows looked quite good enough and Carrie said she should not think of wearing it. I was about to discuss the matter, when, remembering the argument yesterday, resolved to hold my tongue. I said to Carrie, I don't think we can do better than good old broadstairs. Carrie not only, to my astonishment, raised an objection to broadstairs for the first time, but begged me not to use the expression good old, but to leave it to Mr. Stillbrook, another gentleman of his type. Hearing my bus pass the window, I was obliged to rush out of the house without kissing Carrie as usual, and I shouted to her, "'I leave it to you to decide.' On returning in the evening, Carrie said she thought, as the time was so short, she had decided on broadstairs, and had written to Mrs. Beck, Harbour View Terrace, for apartments. August the first ordered a new pair of trousers at Edward's, and told them not to cut them so loose over the boot the last pair being so loose and also tight at the knee, looked like a sailor's, and I heard Pitt, that objectionable youth at the office, call out Hornpipe as I passed his desk. Carrie has ordered of Miss Gibbons a pink garibaldi and blue serge skirt, which I always think looks so pretty at the seaside. In the evening she trimmed herself a little sailor-hat, while I read to her the exchange and mart. We had a good laugh over my trying on the hat when she had finished it. Carrie saying it looked so funny with my beard, and how the people would have roared if I went on the stage like that. August 2nd Mrs. Beck wrote to say we could have our usual rooms at Broadstairs. That's off our mind. Bought a coloured shirt and a pair of tan-coloured boots, which I see many of the swell clerks wearing in the city, and here are all the go. August 3rd a beautiful day, looking forward to to-morrow. Carrie bought a parasol about five feet long. I told her it was ridiculous. She said, Mrs. James of Sutton has one twice as long. So the matter dropped. I bought a capital hat for hot weather at the seaside. I don't know what it is called, but it's the shape of a helmet worn in India only made of straw got three new ties, two coloured handkerchiefs, and a pair of navy-blue socks at Pope Brothers. Spent the evening packing. Carrie told me not to forget to borrow Mr. Higsworth's telescope, which he always lends me, knowing I know how to take care of it. Sent Sarah out for it. While everything was seeming so bright, the last post brought us a letter from Mrs. Beck, saying, I have just let all my house to one party, and, I'm sorry, I must take back my words." And I'm sorry you must find other apartments, but Mrs. Womming, next door will be pleased to accommodate you, but she cannot take you before Monday as her rooms are engaged bank holiday week.
1: End of chapter.
0: The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter Six. THE UNEXPECTED ARRIVAL HOME OF OUR SON WILLIE LUPIN POOTER AUGUST the 4th. The first post brought a nice letter from our dear son Willie, acknowledging a trifling present which Carrie sent him the day before yesterday being his twentieth birthday. To our utter amazement he turned up himself in the afternoon, having journeyed all the way from Oldham. He said he had got leave from the bank, and, as Monday was a holiday, he thought he would give us a little surprise. AUGUST fifth, SUNDAY We have not seen Willie since last Christmas, and are pleased to notice what a fine young man he has grown. One would scarcely believe he was Carrie's son. He looks more like a younger brother. I rather disapprove of his wearing a check suit on a Sunday, and I think he ought to have gone to church this morning but he said he was tired after yesterday's journey, so I refrained from any remark on the subject. We had a bottle of port for dinner, and drank dear Willie's health. He said,—'Oh, by the by, did I tell you I've cut my first name, William, and taken the second name, Lupin? In fact, I'm only known at Oldham as Lupin Pooter. If you were to Willie me there, they wouldn't know what you meant.' Of course, Lupin being a purely family name, Carrie was delighted, and began by giving a long history of the Lupins. I ventured to say that I thought William a nice, simple name, and reminded him he was christened after his Uncle William, who was much respected in the city. Willie, in a manner which I did not much care for, said sneeringly—'Oh, I know all about that, good old Bill!—and helped himself to a third glass of port. Carrie objected strongly to my saying, good old, but she made no remark when Willie used the double adjective. I said nothing but looked at her, which meant more. I said, My dear Willie, I hope you are happy with your colleagues at the bank. He replied, Lupin, if you please, and, with respect to the bank, there's not a clerk who is a gentleman, and the boss is a cad. I felt so shocked I could say nothing, and my instinct told me there was something wrong. August 6th, bank holiday. As there was no sign of Lupin moving at nine o'clock, I knocked at his door and said we usually breakfasted at half-past eight, and asked how long would he be. Lupin replied that he had had a lively time of it, first with the train shaking the house all night, and then with the sun streaming in through the window in his eyes, and giving him a cracking headache. Carrie came up and asked if he would like some breakfast sent up, and he said he could do with a cup of tea, and didn't want anything to eat. Lupin not having come down, I went up again at half-past one, and said we dined at two. He said he would be there. He never came down till a quarter to three. I said, We have not seen much of you, and you'll have to return by the five-thirty train. Therefore you'll have to leave in an hour, unless you go by the midnight mail. He said, Look here, Governor, It's no use beating about the bush. I've tendered my resignation at the bank." For a moment I could not speak. When my speech came again, I said, "'How dare you, sir! How dare you take such a serious step without consulting me! Don't answer me, sir. You will sit down immediately and write a note at my dictation, withdrawing your resignation, and amply apologising for your thoughtlessness.' Imagine my dismay when he replied with a loud guffaw. It's no use. If you want the good old truth, I've got the chuck." August seventh, Mr. Percup has given me leave to postpone my holiday a week, as we could not get the room. This will give us an opportunity of trying to find an appointment for Willie before we go. The ambition of my life would be to get him into Mr. Percup's firm. August eleventh, Although it is a serious matter having our boy Lupin on our hands, Still, it is satisfactory to know he was asked to resign from the bank simply because he took no interest in his work and always arrived an hour, sometimes two hours late. We can all start off on Monday to Broadstairs with a light heart. This will take my mind off the worry of the last few days, which have been wasted over a useless correspondence with the manager at the bank at Oldham. August the thirteenth. Hurrah at Broadstairs! very nice apartments near the station. On the cliffs they would have been double the price. The landlady had a nice five o'clock dinner and tea ready which we all enjoyed, though Lupin seemed fastidious because there happened to be a fly in the butter. It was very wet in the evening, for which I was thankful, as it was a good excuse for going to bed early. Lupin said he would sit up and read a bit. AUGUST fourteenth. I was a little annoyed to find Lupin, instead of reading last night, had gone to a common sort of entertainment given at the assembly-rooms. I expressed my opinion that such performances were unworthy of respectable patronage. But he replied, "'Oh, it was only for one night only. I had a fit of the blues come on, and thought I would go to see Polly Preswell, England's particular spark.' I told him I was proud to say I had never heard of her. Carrie said, do let the boy alone. He's quite old enough to take care of himself, and won't forget he's a gentleman. Remember, you were young once yourself." Rained all day hard, but Lupin would go out. August the fifteenth, Cleared up a bit, so we all took the train to Margate, and the first person we met on the jetty was Gowing. I said, "'Hullo. I thought you'd gone to Barmouth with your Birmingham friends.' He said, Yes, but young Peter Lawrence was so ill they postponed their visit, so I came down here. You know the Cummings are here, too?" Carrie said, Oh, that will be delightful. We must have some evenings together and have games. I introduced Lupin, saying, You'll be pleased to find we have our dear boy at home. Gowing said, How's that? You don't mean to say he's left the bank? I changed the subject quickly, and thereby avoided any of those awkward questions which Gowing always has a knack of asking. August the 16th Lupin positively refused to walk down the parade with me, because I was wearing my new straw helmet with my frock-coat. I don't know what the boy is coming to. August the 17th Lupin not falling in with our views, Carrie and I went for a sale. It was a relief to be with her alone, for when Lupin irritates me, she always sides with him on our return. He said, "'Oh, you've been on the shilling emetic. have you? You'll come to the sixth penneth on the liver jerker next. I presume he meant a tricycle, but I affected not to understand him. August the eighteenth, Gowing and Cummings walked over to arrange an evening at Margate. It being wet. Gowing asked Cummings to accompany him to the hotel, and have a game of billiards, knowing I never play, and in fact disapprove of the game. Cummings said he must hasten back to Margate, whereupon Lupin, to my horror, said, "'I'll give you a game, Gowing, a hundred up. A walk around the cloth will give me an appetite for dinner.' I said, "'Perhaps Mr. Gowing does not care to play with boys.' Gowing surprised me by saying, "'Oh, yes, I do, if they play well.' and they walked off together. August the nineteenth, Sunday. I was about to read Lupin a sermon on smoking, which he indulges in violently, and billiards, but he put on his hat and walked out. Carrie then read me a long sermon on the palpable inadvisability of treating Lupin as if he were a mere child. I felt she was somewhat right, so in the evening I offered him a cigar. He seemed pleased, but after a few whiffs, said, "This is a good old Tupney. Try one of mine and He handed me a cigar as long as it was strong, which is saying a good deal. August the twentieth. I am glad our last day at the seaside was fine, though clouded overhead. We went over to Cummings at Margate in the evening, and as it was cold, we stayed in and played games, gowing as usual, overstepping the mark. He suggested we should play Cutlets, a game we never heard of. He sat on a chair, and asked Carrie to sit on his lap, an invitation which dear Carrie rightly declined. After some species of wrangling, I sat on Gowing's knees, and Carrie sat on the edge of mine. Lupin sat on the edge of Carrie's lap, then Cummings on Lupin's, and Mrs. Cummings on her husband's. We looked very ridiculous, and laughed a good deal. Gowing then said, "'Are you a believer in the great mogul?' We had to answer altogether, "'Yes, oh, yes,' three times. Gowing said, "'So am I,' and suddenly got up." The result of this stupid joke was that we all fell on the ground, and poor Carrie banged her head against the corner of the fender. Mrs. Cummings put some vinegar on, But through this, we missed the last train and had to drive back to Broadstairs, which cost me seven and sixpence. End of chapter The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 7 Home again, Mr. James' influence on Carrie can get nothing for Lupin. Next-door neighbours are a little troublesome. Someone tampers with my diary. Lupin startles us with an announcement. August twenty-second, Home sweet home again. Carrie brought some pretty blue-wool mats to stand vases on. Fripps, Janus, and co. write to say they are sorry they have no vacancy among their staff of clerks for Lupin. August twenty-third. I bought a pair of stag's heads, made of plaster of Paris and coloured brown. They will look just the thing for our little hall, and give it style. The heads are excellent imitations. Poolers and Smith are sorry they have nothing to offer Lupin. August twenty-fourth. Simply to please Lupin and make things cheerful for him, as he is a little down, Carrie invited Mrs. James to come up from Sutton and spend two or three days with us. We have not said a word to Lupin, but mean to keep it as a surprise. August the twenty-fifth, Mrs. James, of Sutton, arrived in the afternoon, bringing with her an enormous bunch of wild flowers. The more I see of Mrs. James, the nicer I think she is, and she is devoted to Carrie. She went into Carrie's room to take off her bonnet, and remained there nearly an hour talking about dress. Lupin said he was not a bit surprised at Mrs. James's visit, but was surprised at her. August 26th, Sunday. Nearly late for church, Mrs. James having talked considerably about what to wear all the morning. Lupin does not seem to get on very well with Mrs. James. I am afraid we shall have some trouble with our next-door neighbours, who came in last Wednesday. Several of their friends, who drive up in dog-carts, have already made themselves objectionable. An evening or two ago I had put on a white waistcoat for coolness, and while walking past with my thumbs in my waistcoat-pockets a habit I have, one man, seated in the cart and looking like an American, commenced singing some vulgar nonsense about—I had thirteen dollars in my waistcoat-pocket. I fancied it was meant for me, and my suspicions were confirmed. For while walking around the garden in my tall hat this afternoon, a throw-down cracker was deliberately aimed at my hat, and exploded on it like a percussion-cap. I turned sharply, and am positive I saw the man who was in the cart retreating from one of the bedroom windows. August twenty-seventh, Carrie and Mrs. James went off shopping, and had not returned when I came back from the office. Judging from the subsequent conversation, I am afraid Mrs. James is filling Carrie's head with a lot of nonsense about dress. I walked over to Gowing's, and asked him to drop in to supper, and make things pleasant. Carrie prepared a little extemporised supper, consisting of the remainder of the cold joint, a small piece of salmon, which I was to refuse, in case there was not enough to go round, and a blancmange and custards. There was also a decanter of port, and some jam-puffs on the sideboard. Mrs. James made us play rather a good game of cards, called Muggings. To my surprise, in fact disgust, Lupin got up in the middle, and, in a most sarcastic tone, said, Pardon me. This sort of thing is too fast for me. I shall go and enjoy a quiet game of marbles in the back garden. Things might have become rather disagreeable, but for Gowing, who seems to have taken to Lupin suggesting they should invent games. Lupin said, Let's play monkeys. He then led Gowing all round the room, and brought him in front of the Looking-Glass. I must confess I laughed heartily at this. I was a little vexed at everybody subsequently laughing at some joke which they did not explain, and it was only on going to bed I discovered I must have been walking about all the evening with an antimacassar on one button of my coat-tails. August 28th found a large brick in the middle bed of geraniums evidently come from next door. Paddles and paddles can't find a place for Lupin. August 29th Mrs. James is making a positive fool of Carrie. Carrie appeared in a new dress like a smock-frock. She said, Smocking was all the rage. I replied, It put me in a rage. She also had on a hat as big as a kitchen coal-scuttle, and the same shape. Mrs. James went home, and both Lupin and I were somewhat pleased. The first time we have agreed on a single subject since his return. Merkins and Son write they have no vacancy for Lupin. October the thirtieth. I should very much like to know who has wilfully torn the last five or six weeks out of my diary. It is perfectly monstrous. mine is a large scribbling diary with plenty of space for the record of my everyday events and in keeping up that record i take with much pride a great deal of pains i asked carrie if she knew anything about it she replied it was my own fault for leaving the diary about with a charwoman cleaning and the sweeps in the house i said that was not an answer to my question this retort of mine which i thought extremely smart would have been more effective had I not jogged my elbow against a vase on a table temporarily placed in the passage, knocked it over and smashed it. Carrie was dreadfully upset at this disaster, for it was one of a pair of vases which cannot be matched, given to us on our wedding day by Mrs. Bursett, an old friend of Carrie's cousins, the Pomertons, late of Dalston. I called to Sarah and asked her about the diary. She said she had not been in the sitting-room at all. After the sweep had left, Mrs. Birrell, the charwoman, had cleaned the room and lighted the fire herself. Finding a burnt piece of paper in the grate, I examined it, and found it was a piece of my diary, so it was evident someone had torn my diary to light the fire. I requested Mrs. Birrell to be sent to me to-morrow. October thirty-first, Received a letter from our Principal, Mr. Perkup saying that he thinks he knows of a place at last for our dear boy Lupin. This, in a measure, consoles me for the loss of a portion of my diary, for I am bound to confess the last few weeks have been devoted to the record of disappointing answers received from people to whom I have applied for appointments for Lupin. Mrs. Birrell called, and, in reply to me, said, she never see no book, much less take such a liberty as touch it i said i was determined to find out who did it whereupon she said she would do her best to help me but she remembered the sweep lighting the fire with a bit of the echo i requested the sweep to be sent to me to-morrow i wish carrie had not given lupin a latch-key we never seemed to see anything of him i sat up till past one for him and then retired tired november the first my entry yesterday about retired tired which I did not notice at the time, is rather funny. If I were not so worried just now I might have had a little joke about it. The sweep called, but had the audacity to come up to the hall door and lean his dirty bag of soot on the doorstep. He, however, was so polite I could not rebuke him. He said Sarah lighted the fire. Unfortunately Sarah heard this, for she was dusting the banisters, and she ran down and flew into a temper with the sweep causing a row on the front doorsteps which i would not have had happen for anything i ordered her about her business and told the sweep i was sorry to have troubled him and so i was for the doorsteps were covered with soot in consequence of his visit i would willingly give ten shillings to find out who tore my diary november the second i spent the evening quietly with carrie of whose company i never tire We had a most pleasant chat about the letters on Is Marriage a Failure? It has been no failure in our case. In talking over our own happy experiences, we never noticed that it was past midnight. We were startled by hearing the door slam violently. Lupin had come in. He made no attempt to turn down the gas in the passage, or even to look into the room where we were, but went straight up to bed, making a terrible noise. I asked him to come down for a moment, and he begged to be excused, as he was dead beat. An observation that was scarcely consistent with the fact that, for a quarter of an hour afterwards, he was positively dancing in his room and shouting out, "See me dance the polka, or some such nonsense." November the third. Good news at last. Mister Perkup has got an appointment for Lupin and he is to go and see him about it on Monday. Oh, how my mind is relieved! I went to Lupin's room to take the good news to him, but he was in bed very seedy, so I resolved to keep it over till the evening. He said he had, last night, been elected a member of an amateur dramatic club called the Holloway Comedians, and though it was a pleasant evening he had sat in a draught and got neuralgia in the head. He declined to have any breakfast, so I left him. In the evening I had up a special bottle of port, and, Lupin being in, for a wonder, we filled our glasses, and I said, "'Lupin, my boy, I have some good and unexpected news for you. Mr. Perkup has procured you an appointment.' Lupin said, "'Good biz,' and we drained our glasses. Lupin then said, Fill up the glasses again, for I have some good and unexpected news for you. I had some slight misgivings, and so evidently had Carrie, for she said, I hope we shall think it good news. Lupin said, Oh, it's all right. I'm engaged to be married. End of chapter